Welcome to Faithful Voices, a podcast of the Religious Institute. This is a place for deep and thoughtful engagement with the topics of religion, gender, sexuality, and reproductive justice. My name is Drew Kono, and I am the Director of Communications and LGBTQ Programs at the Religious Institute. I will be hosting today's conversation, but in future episodes, I know you will be hearing from other members of the Religious Institute staff. To learn more about our podcast, visit us online at religiousinstitute.org podcast. On today's show, I'll be talking with Rev. Dr. Cody Sanders. Cody is a pastoral theologian and the pastor of Old Cambridge Baptist Church in Harvard Square, where he also serves as the American Baptist chaplain to Harvard University. Today, I'll be talking with him about his 2017 book, published by Westminster John Knox Press, A Brief Guide to Ministry with LGBTQIA Youth. Thanks so much for joining me, Cody. Thanks for having me, Drew. I'm glad to be speaking with you. Yeah, likewise. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you can start out by describing how you came to write this book. Sure. Um, I uh, sort of had this book in mind for um, probably a decade or more uh, since I was in seminary. Um, in seminary, I was beginning to um, enter my own process of health and uh, dealing with the intersection of my sense of call to ministry and my relationship to another man and what that was going to me- mean for my process of ordination. Um, and I was re- reflecting on my own growing up in a Southern Baptist church in South Carolina that wasn't affirming, but wasn't particularly um, angry toward LGBT people either. Uh, I, but I never heard any conversation whatsoever really growing up about uh, LGBTQ concerns, and so was left to uh, deal with those questions on my own. And uh, as I started into ministry, I thought it would be a really helpful resource for um, people who work with youth ministers and lay people uh, to have some sort of guide to help them begin to uh, address questions that they maybe hadn't thought of before, uh, so that it could be a better resource for youth in their care. Uh, so, um, started the process of writing this particular book a couple of years ago. I'm really glad that it's mm-hmm. in people's hands now. Great. Um, you start the book uh, by saying, I assume a theologically and biblically affirming stance toward LGBTQIA people. And you just said also that the church that you came from uh, wasn't particularly affirming. I'm wondering if you can sort of break down that term affirming. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think that uh, term means a lot of things to different uh, churches uh, and, and folks. Um, the the basic uh, thing for me in writing this book was that I um, I wasn't interested in rehashing the arguments over why people should embrace LGBT people, why people should uh, affirm uh, the sexuality or gender identity of LGBT people. Because there's been uh, 30 or 40 really solid years of scholarship and publications on that, and there are a lot of other books that help people work through those biblical and theological questions uh, that I point people to in the uh, in the notes in this book. So I start this book assuming that if people are picking it up, you are wanting to provide the best care for LGBTQ youth possible, and that you're providing that care out of a sense of 
um, of believing that their sexuality and their gender identity and expression is healthy and whole and holy. Uh, and that even if you haven't addressed all of the questions that you have around those uh, concerns, uh, that you're, you're ministering with youth uh, from a perspective of uh, deep affirmation for their, for their lives, for their sexuality, and for the process of uh, growth and development and exploration therein in adolescence. Yeah, I think that's important what you're saying about sort of folks that may be in process, right? Um, and you, you reference this in different parts of the book as well, that there may be people who um, are at different stages in that process. And I think that as an author, you kind of try and hold some of that tension around um, speaking to a broad audience that um, is entering into this conversation at many different points. Um, yeah, one of the important things about uh, that, even if you're on the uh, really extreme, uh, you know, long time affirming, read all the books about uh, LGBTQ concerns in the Bible and theology or whatever, uh, the reality is you may still never have thought about how to practice care for LGBTQ youth that you hold an affirming stance in relation to. So you may think all the right things or you may believe all the affirming uh, things about LGBTQ lives, but you may not have thought about the particular uh, situations that LGBTQ youth go through that call for your care and concern. And so this is a sort of very brief toolbox for people who uh, who want to develop that competency to be a caring uh, presence in the lives of LGBT people. Right. And I think in that sense, it's very much rooted in sort of your um, location within sort of pastoral care and pastoral theology and sort of the that really informs I think kind of the thrust of the book throughout and it really does come to bear um, um, in the in the book's final chapter um, you talk about and this is I think in some ways broadening from this conversation we're already having but you talk about the audience that you imagine for the book um, being largely straight and cisgender ministers and lay leaders seeking to develop competency in addressing the needs of LGBTQIA youth. I'm wondering, um, first of all, I want to say you do a really good job of acknowledging throughout the book that it's not only people who have professional training that, that are, that's doing the work of youth ministry, which I find is very true in sort of congregational context. And I think that's it's great that you lift that up. I'm wondering, um, though, if you can talk a little bit about what it was like writing for the audience that you sort of imagine, um, and what were some of the things that you wanted them and others to really take away from this book? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the easiest ways to see the audience that I imagined in writing the book uh, is in the vignettes that uh, lead off each chapter. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are vignettes about uh, a, a pastor who's approached by a uh, a queer youth who has a particular question in relation to, you know, coming out to their parents or a Sunday school teacher who's working with a, uh, a trans student in their uh, church and trying to cultivate a, an affirming atmosphere for that trans student and things of that nature. I mean, so this is who I'm thinking about when I'm writing this book, people who, you know, who may have who may have uh, professional training in seminary, but may never have really dealt with LGBTQ concerns, or people who are uh, Sunday school teachers or youth ministry volunteers or parents who have 
really never thought about uh, these issues at all. And so, you know, even if they are really loving and affirming of LGBTQ youth, uh, if a youth comes to them in the midst of some sort of crisis or, uh, you know, uh, con- contemplating uh, suicide or a homeless youth comes to their door and they've, they've never thought about what they would do in these situations and never had any uh, guidance and thinking through the questions that relate to that situation. Uh, those are the people who I really wanted to reach with this book. Um, and I assume that these are really busy people who <laughs> you know, aren't devoting their entire, uh, and their entire days to uh, ministry, uh, but they, they care enough to uh, develop the competency to be present in a, in a loving, compassionate, and skillful way um, for queer youth in their uh, in their care, um, so I, part of that uh, process of writing for that audience for me uh, was taking the um, you know the uh, years of academic study that I've done around LGBTQ concerns and pastoral care and counseling, and translating that into um, really approachable, helpful. Uh, uh, pieces of, of information and uh, and questions to think through uh, for people who do, who aren't going to spend you know uh, six years getting a PhD in pastoral mm-hmm. care and studying LGBT right. suicide, but but who in two or three pages need to know something about what to do in a situation of suicide uh, with LGBTQ youth. And I think I think you you talked about the vignettes that start each chapter, which I think is sort of a really grounding piece of this book. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you think about those in relation to the other content in the book and maybe um, what was the process for you in putting those together? Hmm. Um, A lot of the vignettes, uh, none of the vignettes represent one person's story. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I took pieces of of stories and narratives and situations that I had encountered or heard other ministers encounter, and I sort of pieced them together and and vignettes that, you know, that wouldn't be representative of one uh, story that someone could read and say, oh, that's my story there. Although I think many people can probably read some of these stories and think, wow, this is very similar to something that I've experienced. but for me, the purpose of those vignettes at the outset of each chapter is to um, someone picking up this book uh, who doesn't necessarily even know if they're working with LGBTQ youth. And I always tell people if they are working with youth at all, they are most likely working with LGBTQ youth, even if they don't know it. But for someone picking up this book, just wanting the skills, but not knowing even necessarily you know, what their needs are, they can read a vignette and say, oh, I really... I can see myself encountering this situation in my ministry or in my uh, youth group that I volunteer with or whatever. So it helps them more uh, viscerally, uh, viscerally enter the uh, situation that I'm trying to help develop some competency to address. Great. Um, I noticed both in terms of the way that you talk about the vignettes, but also more broadly in the book, um, you draw on this idea, and it comes up in multiple places, of cultivating spaces or creating spaces. Um, and, I, and I think what you mean by this, and what you say you mean by this, actually, is um, spaces for dialogue and exploration and journeying. And it seems to me that in the book, you frequently use this concept in contrast with 
the idea that there's a more rigid model or rubric or set way that things should be that set way that someone should experience their um, gender identity or their sexual or effective orientation. Uh, for example, in one place, you say, while giving youth the language to use to describe their experience isn't necessarily helpful, cultivating the space for youth to enter into dialogue is vitally important. And in other places, you similarly counsel the reader to be less concerned that young people are following a specific rubric and more concerned with creating spaces in which they can be open. Talk to me a little bit about this idea of cultivating and creating spaces and why this is so important in the context of ministry with LGBTQIA young people. Mm. Um, yeah, that's a really helpful question. Uh, I think for uh, a long time, particularly in uh, more social science-driven um, literature on LGBTQ people, and a lot of the ministerial resources that have been based on those social scientific models, there um, there are a lot of there's a lot of interest in sort of stages of coming out or stages mm -hmm. of identity development as a gay person or as a trans person or whatever. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that; they're not bad, but uh, they also are not always the most helpful starting place for people. Uh, and I think sometimes people can latch on to those models as sort of the way that it happens for people. Right. Uh, and then they become less uh, descriptive and more tools that people use to try to make sure they're helping someone work through the identity development model that they favor or whatever. Uh, and I'm not interested in helping people uh, move through a particular process uh, or helping uh, uh, volunteers or ministers um, uh, learn those models. Uh, I think for youth um, in particular, but really for LGBT people more broadly today, there we have come to value the um, indeterminacy and the fluidity and the evolution and and um, and uh, you know less linear processes of our own sense of who we are and our identities and how we develop as people. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you get at those things not so much by learning an identity development model, but by learning how to ask really good questions or learning how to set the stage through your own actions and attitudes and the way you talk about sexuality or gender identity more broadly. Uh, you set this sort of uh, context in which a youth can bring into dialogue, bring into conversation with you uh, their own realities, their own experiences, their own questions. Uh, and then, you, you know, when you hear those questions or you hear those pieces of their story, you're not trying to plug them into this identity development model that you have in mind that this youth should be moving through. Uh, you're really curiously engaging this person with deep compassion, uh, deep listening. Uh, and that, so those are the skills that I'm really trying to develop uh, for readers of this book. Um, and it is cultivating a space. I mean, there are certainly uh, youth ministries that maybe even seek to be affirming places for LGBTQ youth, but um, there's sort of a, a tacit um, communication through people's uh, the way people talk about sexuality, even the outdated language people use about sexuality. Mm -hmm that it's not necessarily a safe or or uh, engaging place for me to bring up 
my questions related to my you know my gender identity or my sexual uh, identity right um a lot of that is inadvertent and so i help people especially in the first uh, you know the introduction to the text has a really lengthy glossary of terms that some of which are outdated and people need to know they're outdated and people don't use these yeah. terms so much anymore and, yeah. and some of which are evolving and people don't have never even heard this term but they're terms that people are finding helpful and descriptive of their own sense of sexual identity or gender identity and expression yeah um i think also just digging a little bit deeper into this conversation about cultivated bases i think um one of the things that you also um, do within the book around this is um, is acknowledging that part of what the youth minister's role is is also to give youth permission to acknowledge that the way that we understand gender and sexuality, including things like the gender binary or the concept of sexual orientation, are imperfect, um, and that these concepts in the way that they're reinforced in our society can and can be and frequently are forms of systemic injustices. And when I think about having that conversation with young people, even just in an implicit way, I start to wonder what kinds of exploration and possibilities that opens up, um, not just for LGBTQ youth, but also for everyone else who's in the conversation or in the youth group or in the faith community. Yeah. Um, well, so certainly that's that's the case for LGBT people that um, uh, that we're constantly figuring out that the language and the, you know the concepts and the frameworks for understanding our lives that oftentimes have been handed to us by professional discourses like psychiatry or sociology or psychology don't really fit our realities exactly or anymore or in the ways that they're evolving so um so yeah i'm really interested in the ways that uh lgbtqia voices are challenging those models and pushing the boundaries of what those models say are possible to think about in terms of gender or sexuality but i'm also interested in how that um, helps uh cisgender and uh heterosexual people who are reading mm -hmm. this book think about their own lives and so there are several times in, in the book when I'm talking about various things like, uh, for instance, Lisa Diamond's work on uh, sexual fluidity and her really intense uh, research on the sexual fluidity of the women in her, her studies and how they, their sexualities and, and the ways they express it and the ways they describe it uh, aren't always constant over time and have a lot of dyna dynamic uh, sort of ways of, of changing and evolving and things of this nature. And so, you know, out of, out of talking about some of that, I ask the reader, including the, you know, cisgender and straight readers to think about their own sexuality and their own gender identity uh, and how, if they really think about it carefully and with some honesty, uh, they can see how the concepts that they've been asked to fit themselves into this gender binary of male and female or the sexual binary of gay and straight uh, don't necessarily fit for them either. Uh, mm -hmm. So it develops a bit of, um, you know, empathic uh, understanding for, for the ways the LGBTQIA youth that they work with 
may not always fit within the, the frameworks, understandings that they have in mind that these youth should be fitting into. So that when something is uh, bumping up against their conceptual understanding of what sexual uh, orientation means or what gender identity means, they don't react in a way that sort of shuts down conversation and says, well, you must be confused about your sexuality because these are the choices, you know, uh, but really invite some conversation about uh, the dynamic, fluid understanding of ourselves as sexual and gender beings. Um, so I hope that's the case, both in how people practice their ministries with LGBTQIA youth, but also how they think about their own lives, uh, no matter how they might identify their sexuality or their gender identity. Right. And I think especially, too, for other members of the youth group, right? I think a lot of the things you talk about are on are involved in one-on-one -on -one pastoral care, but there are also some um, group activities or group conversations that, um, that the entire youth group um, may be having together, right? Yeah, and I think yeah. that, I mean, youth is such, a, it's such an interesting time. Um, but it, there's all of these things that are emerging in you, right? And um, as you try to make sense of them, especially things around your own gender and sexuality, um, there, there can frequently just be a lot of confusion and a lot of loneliness. And some of that, I think, comes from um, folks who identify in a number of different ways, just seeing the models that they're being offered and not necessarily reciprocating um, or experiencing them in the ways that um, they're expected to. And so I think this kind of freedom that um, folks have to perhaps reject the models or to acknowledge that those models are imperfect, even for, you know, uh, cisgender heterosexual youth that can open up different possibilities for their own expression of their um, gender identity and sexuality um, and I, in ways that I think can be creative and life-giving and interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, this is, uh, yeah, it isn't just about, uh, you know, doing pastoral care uh, for the LGBTQIA youth in your group, but about uh, approaching the entire work of your, of your ministry and companionship with the whole of your youth group, you know. Uh, in a way that that cultivates that space for self-understanding to develop, and uh, uh, with a bit of a bit of freedom uh, beyond the the concepts you hold in mind, and and it's not that those frameworks and concepts are unhelpful or uh, you have to throw them out, but to hold them at a bit of a distance and say mm -hmm. this is a this is a way of understanding sexual orientation or gender identity, but it's not the definitive word on it. So if this helps me understand a bit about something in relation to my ministry with, with youth, uh, that's terrific, but I'll hold it loosely and lightly and allow the experiences of my youth to inform how uh, I need to grow beyond these concepts and frameworks that have been given to me. Um, but yeah, you're, I think you're, you're, you're right. A lot of this has to do with how you how you cultivate the entirety of your youth ministry. Um, and I and in this research for this book, uh, I, you know, I not only not only did the research to write the book, but I, as I was writing it, I was sharing the chapters 
with people who are in youth ministry to see what they thought about these concepts. And, and, and in a lot of ways, uh, they really um, helped me develop the book in some very rich ways. Uh, you know, I, I had a lot of conversation and email exchanges over passages of the book, and some of those exchanges ended up in the book uh, from, uh, you know, like really veteran youth ministers like uh, Cara Hughes-Greer in Atlanta, who has been working with youth for a long time, and some of her insights uh, into how she, for instance, organizes Sunday school in ways that are beyond right. um, organization based on gender or based on age or whatever, which is sort of our typical go-to frameworks for how we think we need to divide people up uh, into classes, you know. So, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate uh, your mentioning that it really is more 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 than just the individual pastoral care with LGBTQIA youth. It's how you're cultivating the entirety of your youth ministry. Right, and the and if you read the end notes in the book, you see that the email exchanges sometimes get cited as well. Um, so I appreciated yeah. seeing that. So that was that was really um, honest to cite them, but also it was um, I think indicative of the really what you're saying, which is that you did rely on kind of a community of folks that have expertise as well. You're listening to Faithful Voices a podcast of the Religious Institute. As we move into the next section of our conversation, we should note that there are a few moments where the audio breaks up because of a poor connection. If you would like to read a full transcript of our conversation with Cody Sanders, you can find one at religiousinstitute.org slash podcast. One of the things you reference in the book um, is this notion that LGBTQI youth are at risk, um, and you cite in the book um, rates of suicide, homelessness, and bullying, and you, you have a whole chapter actually about ministry amid questions and crisis. Um, and at the end of the preceding chapter, you write um, that you say the stakes are too high for LGBTQIA persons in our midst whose lives are often quite literally at stake. Um, and, and reading the way that you write about this, brought up a lot of questions for me. Um, one of the things that I thought about um, are the discussions among certain queer theorists and cultural critics about this notion of the child um, and how, just to kind of grossly oversummarize some of these arguments, um, according to these folks, um, the sort of figurative notion of the child is treated with a certain preference in culture and society as innocent, passive, in need, and politically non-suspect. But adults, particularly queer adults, are not necessarily given that same charity or not perceived in the same way in all of these different structural and linguistic ways, which I know that's very complicated. Um, but I'm wondering sort of, to bring it back to the practical, how would you counsel faith communities to contextualize their concern for youth within a concern for LGBTQIA people of all ages? And, and relatedly, how, do, how does one balance giving care with acknowledging the agency of those that are receiving it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really terrific question. Um, and and there are, I, I think there are a lot of 
concerned with the sort of risk at risk discourse around around mm-hmm. LGBT youth that I didn't want to play into uh, any more than uh, I could help. Uh, and so it was important for me to note in various places that you know even though the um, you know the prevalence of suicide among LGBTQ youth is a great deal higher than than uh, youth. Eight to ten percent of all adolescents uh, who who deal with suicidality, and around thirty percent of LGBT people. So it is a higher percentage, but also it's not every LGBTQ person mm-hmm. who uh, deals with suicidality. And for a long time, and you know, media portrayals of LGBT people, um, the LGBT person was always the um, person who was dealing with mental illness or suicidality, or who was you know, the criminal or whatever. So uh, not playing into that, I did want to, people to, to be aware that there are particular risks that LGBTQ youth face uh, that have uh, a social history, you know, that, that, that uh, the rate of homelessness among LGBT uh, youth, which is uh, around you know, 40% of homeless youth in the uh, country identify as LGBTQ. Uh, whereas you know five five to seven percent of the total youth population are LGBTQ, so that's disproportionate uh, uh, disproportionately affecting LGBTQ youth because of the prevalence of family rejection, community rejection, and things of this nature. So there are reasons for these uh, uh, for these particular forms of risk. They aren't inherent in the experience of being LGBTQIA. Um, and you know, in my own research, with uh, I wrote my dissertation on suicide among LGBTQ youth, or not youth specifically, mm-hmm. but uh, I interviewed LGBT people who had had um, suicide attempts in their lifetime and survived. And I looked at the ways religion, religious, and spiritual narratives um, came to become uh, informative of a sense of self, basically, for LGBT people leading the suicide attempt. And I wasn't terribly surprised at all of the ways that those religious and spiritual narratives played into making suicide a thinkable option. But what was really surprising to me and really heartening to me and exciting to me was to hear how these people who you know, participated in my interviews um, survived their suicide attempt and then exercised their own theological agency to become really creative queer theologians. Uh, for the livability of their own lives, you know, they survived their suicide attempt, or some, in some cases, several suicide attempts. Um, and rather than just sort of abandoning all of their, you know, religious uh, practices and, 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 and notions and things, they worked with them in some very creative ways that I think churches should be learning from. Um, and many of many of the people I interviewed, several of them actually had no faith community whatsoever to work through these questions with. Uh, I remember one interview, and we got finished, and I, I asked the interviewee, uh, and you know, he was a, a 50-year-old man who had had suicide attempts in his 20s, so it had been quite a while. And uh, you know, we got finished with the interview, and I said, "So it sounds like you." have read some queer theology. It certainly sounded, sounded to me like he had, he had really uh, learned a lot from queer theologians who've been doing this work academically. 
And his response was, what is queer theology? Oh, wow. uh, he, had never, <laughs> he had never read any queer theology. And not only that, he had only just discovered in the week or so before our interview that there were LGBTQ affirming churches that he could belong to. So for like 30 years, he had been working through these religious and theological questions on his own and had become a really adept theologian. He mm. was working out theology that helped him to live and, and, and not just survive, but thrive in his life and in his sexual uh, identity uh, in ways that were incredible. So that's the question that you, you raised about the the role of um, acknowledging the agency of people who are, you know, quote, receiving uh, right. care, uh, because it's not just sort of a, a, a care delivery. Um, the person uh, who is in the care seeking or, or whatever position is actually a dynamic partner in the, in the act of caregiving. Uh, and that, um, you know, to acknowledge the resourcefulness and the resiliency uh, of this person who is who is seeking care for you, or you've been charged to care. It changes the caregiving process, and it enriches it in some ways that that wouldn't be the case if you assumed you had the care and you were going to deliver it to the person who needed it. Um, and I think the other part of your question, if I remember correctly, uh, related to how care for LGBTQ youth relates to LGBT people across the lifespan or something like that? Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, and just thinking about how, I mean, I think particularly what I'm thinking about here is how, um, you know, we might spend a lot of energy and time and thoughtfulness and thinking about taking care of or being present with um, or creating spaces for um, LGBTQ youth, but as you become maybe um, an adult um, or someone who's in midlife or even um, an elderly person, there doesn't necessarily seem to always be that same level of um, kind of concern and conscientiousness. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, yeah that's, a good, that's a good point. Um, so uh, first I'll tell you the reason that I focused on you here. Uh, and that is that, uh, you know, as I was looking for resources for people who were in ministry with LGBTQ youth, and I was Googling resources I got on Amazon and typed in something like, you know, gay youth ministry or whatever. Mm-hmm. What I found was a uh, book, you know, probably I think around three, but I can recall, three books on ministry with uh, usually gay youth, uh, they, I don't think any of them dealt with gender identity so much, um, that were all written from very conservative evangelical perspectives that were, um, that were often written in a way that tried to be very compassionate, but firm that LGBTQ identities were whole and holy and, uh, you know, that needed to be affirmed. So they, uh, in one of them, in fact, was written by someone who is a reparative therapist. Mm-hmm. So when I searched for resources and I kind of thought about what, you know, what any any uh, youth ministry volunteer uh, in the country might find if they typed in something in their search engine or in Amazon, 
and purchased it because none of these books seemed like they would be harmful from the description. But I ordered them and I read them, and <laughs> they're quite harmful. <laughs> and I thought, this is what people are getting if they search for this and purchase the books that are available. So I thought it really is necessary to have a book like this out there from pe- for people who want to have a, a, you know, an actual helpful ministry with LGBT youth. Um, and youth are in a position of, of some vulnerability just in the sense that they are minors. I mean, they're mm-hmm. dependent on uh, parents who are sometimes not really understanding of an LGBTQIA youth. Um, so these are sort of positions of vulnerability that they're in just by the virtue of their own age I mean, and nothing else and the fact that they're minors. So people need some resources around that. But I think you're really pointing to some growing um, edges in ministerial resources and, you know, larger kind of social scientific resources in relation to LGBT people uh, and the ways that we have not really founded the concerns of other uh, aid groups. And it makes me think of this. Um, I have a, a friend who's a clinical pastoral education supervisor um, place here in, in Boston uh, that is a, uh, a nursing home and rehabilitation facility that works you know, with elderly people, of course. And for the past two years, she has focused her uh, clinical education with her students on the needs of the LGBTQ elderly, um, because her students are working in this nursing home context where, I mean, so many really interesting things are happening, like uh, a trans person is beginning a transition in their 80s, because it's the first time in their lives when they haven't had the constraints of a job that they might get fired from if they made a transition. Um, and, you know, a whole, a whole lot of reasons that kept them from making this transition earlier in life. Uh, and there's not a lot of resources for, uh, for helping caregivers understand how to be supportive of, of these, um, you know, later in life LGBTQ, uh, concerns right. and people who are coming out to their, uh, to their adult children when they're mm-hmm. in their eighties or nineties or people who are dealing with dementia and the secrets that they've kept about their uh, sexuality or gender identity all their lives are coming out inadvertently. And what does that mean for the care for the family of people who are now grappling with uh, new revelations about their, their parents and grandparents that they had never known before? And that the parent or grandparent may not even necessarily want to be sharing, but is right. the situation of dementia. So yeah, there are so many uh, other um, other age-specific uh, or life stage-specific concerns that I think churches uh, that really want to practice their affirmation and don't just want to put it on their sign or hang up a rainbow flag because they made a decision and didn't vote. But they really want to care for the lives of LGBT people. Uh, they have this whole range of of concerns that are are really rich uh, fields of exploration for their ministry, um, and maybe I'll work on some of that later. Uh, <laughs> we'll some, look for it. There are, <laughs> there are some people doing that work, but it's yeah. still, you know, it's a, still, a small number of people who are looking at those of those concerns. Great. Um, I, I think just um, 
as a sidebar, I think it's worth mentioning SAGE, which is a great um, organization which works specifically with LGBT elders um, and does not, at least to my knowledge, have um, an extensive engagement or project with in faith communities, but certainly have a lot of resources. They do not, but um, but they do have a lot of resources for folks that are interested in learning more about what it means to provide um, nursing home care for LGBTQ elders and a lot of just really helpful educational as well as they have um, some facilities that they run, I think in the New York City area. So um, if someone's listening and is interested in learning more, Sage would definitely be a great place to go and start that. Yeah, that's yeah, really helpful. Um, my um, maybe penultimate, perhaps the last question, we'll see, um, is um, is about something that I noticed, another thing that I noticed in reading the book. Um, and you, you close the book with a quotation from Judith Butler's 2015 book, uh, Notes Toward a Performative Theory of Assembly. Um, and if I'm also reading you correctly, you use terms throughout the book that draw on Butler. Um, so you use this, you, two terms that I picked up on. One is one that you just used when you were answering uh, one of the questions, which is livability of a life, um, which I read at least as drawing on Butler, as well as um, this term precariousness of the soul. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the role of Judith Butler's work in this book, and perhaps more broadly in your work, um, as well as um, the role of um, queer and feminist theory, sort of largely speaking. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's hard to really explain the the impact that Judith Butler's work has had on on my thinking and and work um, in, in a short amount of time. Uh, yeah, I'm glad that you picked up. That's really uh, it was really nice to hear that you picked up that Butler's work is um, sort of all over this book in some ways uh, and and it's sort of you know people in the trenches of ministry who you know, had any experience with theology or philosophy or, or feminist theory or queer theory um, I'm still glad that even that kind of work uh, evidences the the fingerprints of, of Butler and so <laughs> it was subtle but it was still there <laughs> yeah uh, because it's kind of that, that is, it can really go into depth in explaining the uh, intricacies of Butler's, uh, you know, gender performativity or whatever. But right. that was influential in how I portrayed gender identity and expression. Um, the book assumes, and you know, it, it doesn't. I don't really go into a lot of um, uh, explanation about why this is, but the book assumes that. Um, sexual identity and identity are uh, are formed in our relation to others, in our relation to society, and in our relation to you know everything we're exposed to in terms of uh, media and social sciences and legal discourses and religious discourses. Um, and there's a dynamism to that. There's a fluidity to that. Um, so. You know, to, to, to use the more technical terms, it doesn't assume an essentialist perspective on mm -hmm. sexual orientation, gender identity. It assumes a more construct, uh, constructionist perspective. Um, and Butler and a whole lot of others were helpful in developing my understanding of that. 
Um, and Butler was really influential for me in writing my dissertation on LGBT suicide, because what I was looking at is the ways religious and spiritual theological narratives come to constitute in a really, um, in a way that feels really deep to us, uh, our sense of who we are as human beings and our sense of uh, ourselves as sexual beings and gendered beings. Um, and some of Butler's works that, that did this more than others are some of the works that I think are not as widely read of Butler's, like early work, Excitable Speech, mm-hmm. which I think is a really beautiful and terrific and helpful work for understanding how, how language uh, constitutes our sense of who we are. Um, yeah, so I, I think the, the clearest way that, that Butler uh, shows up here and other queer theorists is the assumption that I make in these chapter, the half of the book, which explains uh, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, the assumption I make in those chapters that um, these pieces of our sense of who we are are not static, fixed, um, set by nature, or whatever, but that there is a really deep relation uh, to these between these understandings and our, you know, social relation to others and to society, um, and that they aren't fixed; they are dynamic. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. I really appreciate the the um, I don't know the care, the depth. Uh, that you gave reading this book, like they really come through in these questions that you've you've engaged me in today. I guess this is what happens when two nerds get together. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so my last question, and this is my last question, and I'm thinking particularly about my role here at the Religious Institute and in asking this question, which we are, um, as you know, a national multi-faith organization. And so when we think about um, being an organization that is interested in gender and sexuality and reproductive health, um, a lot of times the conversations around faith are very much um, rooted in sort of certain contexts, many of which are Christian contexts. And I know that this is a book that is written um, sort of with the Christian, the context of Christian ministry as the foreground. Um, I'm wondering, though, what advice would you give to someone hoping to adapt it um, to their own context, perhaps in another faith tradition? Yeah, I've talked to that. Um, Yeah, that's a really helpful direction. Um, I I will say just about how I was thinking about writing this book and the the audience that I was conceiving of uh, reading it. it doesn't deal with you know, the questions around affirmation or you know developing a, a theology of sexuality necessarily. I feel like its its audience can be pretty wide. Um, you know, I, I before I'm, I'm Baptist and I've mostly served Baptist context and I'm ordained Baptist, but before coming to Old Cambridge Baptist Church uh, as the pastor. I was serving in a Unitarian Universalist church in Davis, California, uh, doing pastoral care in that congregation. So I often thought about, as I was writing this book, uh, is there anything that would prevent a Unitarian Universalist in a, in a more 
humanist congregation for picking this up and using it. And I, I don't know. I would need to ask some people in this context, but uh, I don't think there is, except for, you know, the examples are sometimes um, you know examples of you know a church that is obviously like a mainline Protestant church or something like that 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 um, may you know speak about. Uh, God or Jesus in ways that would be that would be different from a, a humanist context. Um, there's a big portion of the book, at least the, the you know the exploration of gender identity and sexual orientation, that um, I think is not specific to any uh, religious context. Mm-hmm. And I'd be interested if readers from other religious contexts uh, approach that. Uh, part of the text or the text as a whole, um, you know, what they what they might add to or subtract from or change in some ways. And I haven't had contact, I haven't had uh, conversations with readers from those contexts yet because it's been about a couple of weeks now. Right. But I hope that that will I hope that that will happen because I uh, I think it could be useful for other contexts outside of uh, Christian congregation, um, but. Yeah, I need to have some conversation to see if that's the case. Great. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciated our conversation and your engagement with the questions. And thank you for listening to Faithful Voices, a podcast of the Religious Institute. Today's conversation was with Reverend Dr. Cody Sanders, author of A Brief Guide to Ministry with LGBTQIA Youth. To learn more about Cody's book or about this podcast, visit us at religiousinstitute.org slash podcast. Thanks.